0: Father, we do confess there is nowhere else for us to go. We come to you, Lord, because you are the fountain of living water. You are the bread that satisfies. You are the giver of life. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You gather us in here that we might proclaim your excellencies and worship you. And it's our prayer that that's what we do today. The eyes of all of us, the hearts of us all, are looking to you, Father. We wait eagerly with anticipation for your return. But in the meantime, as we sojourn and pilgrim in this life, Lord, we pray that you would help us because we're weak. We're prone to wandering from you. We become discouraged. We're overcome with worry and anxiety and fear. We have a lot of questions as to why things are the way that they are and when are things going to end and how are things going to turn out. But in all these things, Lord, you are the sovereign Lord who holds them all in your hand. You know all of these things. And just because we don't know doesn't mean that we need to worry, for we know the one who does know and is organizing, orchestrating, moving all things toward their divinely appointed end. So we look forward to being gathered together, Lord, with you and your kingdom eternally and finally. We pray, Lord, that the food that you have for us today in your word would sustain us and strengthen us, convict us, change us, help us, humble us today, Lord, as the text that we are going to look at today has the ability to do if we're listening and listening rightly. So we thank you again for today, for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus would oftentimes say to his disciples, as we've been seeing in Luke. Be careful how you hear, and today's passage is one that, I mean, every passage is important to remember this truth with, but passages like this, especially important, Unworthy Servants is our sermon title. It's real, real catchy, right? This is what gathers everybody together. When you hear a sermon title like Unworthy Servants, yeah, let's, let's see what this is all about. Um... But I think our message for us today is one that is timely for for us as a church in America within the, the culture that we live in. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with William Carey. William Carey is known as the father of modern day missions. He spent 41 years in India ministering to various people groups there. He translated the Bible into six full languages. And over in about 209 other languages and dialects, he founded um, theological schools. He personally saw around 400 converts. people come to know Christ in His ministry in his time. And he paved the way for other missionaries, great missionaries in our, throughout the Christian church, such as Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor and David Livingstone, men that God has used in the history of this world to accomplish, remarkable feats of gospel ministry and preaching so that people might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and come to know him as their Lord and Savior. When Dr. Carey became ill, an inquiry was made. If this sickness should prove fatal, what passage did you select as the text for your funeral sermon? He replied, oh, I feel that such a poor, sinful creature is unworthy to have anything said about him. But if a funeral sermon must be preached, let it be from the words of Psalm 51:1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy lovingkindness, according unto the multitude of Thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. In the same spirit of humility, he directed in his will that the following inscription be made upon his gravestone. William Carey, born August 17, 1761, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. This was a man that God used to accomplish incredible things from our perspective for the kingdom of God. You imagine being a missionary, a, a front this is when frontier missions was like groundbreaking. Nobody was going to other countries with. The idea of never coming home to lands they had never seen to people they had no idea who they were or what they were going to do and devote 41 years of your life translating the bible into six languages 200 dialects theological schools and being really the heartbeat of of missions for the church for years and years to come and yet in all the while he saw himself through the lens of a wretched poor and helpless worm on thy kind arms i fall I wonder within the church where the, the spirit of humility sometimes has gone. There's, our text today addresses this issue directly. It's not one that's difficult to understand by any means, but it's really difficult to apply. It's really difficult to accept. It's really difficult to embrace what it is that Jesus tells his disciples in our text today and what it is that he in turn tells us as well. Our text today really chops at the heart of pride, which is something that we all struggle with in some way, shape, or form. At the end of the day, we like to be made much of. We like to be acknowledged. We like to be celebrated. We like to be given kudos and a pat on the back. We all, we all like that. And But our passage today cuts at the heart of what those things can, not necessarily what they always do, but what they can create within somebody, and that's a a heart of pride. So in our passage today, we're going to read Luke 17, verses 7 through 10 today, and then we want to work our way through it and look at it um, and see how we might apply it to our lives as we keep an eye on also the culture that we live in and how anti cultural this, a passage like this, really is, when you consider what it is that Jesus is saying. So Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, let's read together. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There are some passages in Scripture that really tend to well up within the heart, this this sense of pure joy and happiness that we're brought into this wonderful union and this relationship with Christ and that that he would love us to such a great degree that he would send his only begotten son to die a horrific death on our behalf. This is just not one of those passages. This This is a passage that really cuts at the heart of pride and brings us down and reminds us of the importance of humility. And we want to get into in a little bit here in our message how it is that you can cultivate a heart. How can you read a passage like this and rejoice in it? Because it's pinned, it's written in Scripture, is it not? Is it for our good because it is written for us that we may know it? Aren't we supposed to with humility, aren't we supposed to even with joy be able to, to read a passage like this and to see it? And to embrace it. Why is it that when we read a passage like this at times, a lot of often we will have this response of so good about myself, necessarily. But very clearly the text says what it says, and we want to see how we can apply it in our lives. It's really even more is that Jesus had taught his disciples from last week's sermon. One of the primary teaching points from last week's sermon was that when our brothers are in sin or sturation, and that forgiveness, when we live life together, sin and temptation are going to be common. Forgiveness is going to be necessary, and forgiveness applied in faith. It's not that we need more faith right, to practice forgiveness. We need to apply the faith. So you tie together this the, 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 the topic of forgiveness with what it is that Jesus is saying today. And we have in our, before us, a very difficult, humbling task. Correct your brother or sister in Christ, and they repent. You are to grant them forgiveness. And when you have done so, you are only doing what God has called you to do. See, we... Forgiveness towards one another. And I'm talking about in real ways in which we have deeply hurt one another. There's been deep interpersonal conflict with each other, we get this feeling that I've got to reach down real deep and I've got to gather all that I can and muster in order to forgive this person for what they've done to me. Because because you don't know what they have done. You don't know how they have hurt me. And that can turn into, look at me and what I've done. I have shown such incredible goodness and kindness and mercy. I even forgave you. I even forgave so-and-so. And And Jesus' response is, you've simply done your duty. We want to be celebrated. We want to be made much of. Look at what it is that I've done. And this is not to minimize the legitimate hurt that we cause against one another. It's to emphasize and magnify the forgiveness that we've been given in Christ that we can then extend to one another. And when we do so, we're simply doing what it is that God calls us to do as his servants, as unworthy servants. Forgiveness is not, in many ways, forgiveness what our text challenges Us with his forgiveness is not some monumental event some colossal feat of extraordinary goodness but what is normal and ordinary in the life of the believer because sin and temptation are normal even within the household of God we're going to sin against one another in marriages, husbands, you're gonna sin against your wives. Your wives are gonna sin against you. You're gonna sin against your kids. Your kids are gonna sin against you. There's just gonna be sinning going on all over the place between everybody. And the response is that is that forgiveness is a normative aspect of, these, of relationships that we have with one another in Christ. It's not some extraordinary colossal feat that we were able to forgive one another. It's ordinary and normal for God's people to be so gracious and generous with one another, why? Because that's what we've been given in Christ. We talked about this last week, the foundation, the root, the ability to practice genuine forgiveness with each other is always rooted in an understanding, a comprehension, a meditation and an embracing upon the depth of the forgiveness that has been extended to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. You grasp that, you meditate upon that, you dig down deep, you drill down into forgiveness that God extends to you and I, and then you're freed to be forgiving of other people. And it doesn't become something monumental, it becomes something ordinary. But Again, this chops at our pride. We love praise. We love applause. And forgiveness can become a trap for us in this way. One, because we think too highly of ourselves. Forgiveness becomes really extraordinary when I think much of myself. Forgiveness becomes really an extraordinary thing not only when I think much of myself, but when I think too little of God. And forgiveness becomes really extraordinary not only when I think much of myself and I think too little of God, but I have unrealistic expectations of you. I can't believe you would do that to me. We are capable of hurting each other in tremendous ways. Nothing surprises me anymore. If there's one thing that I have learned... In the years that I've been doing counseling with people, is that I'm not surprised anymore by anything that anybody does to anybody. And yet, the response is always the same. Let's look to Christ. What does he say and how does he call us to respond to these things? Jesus would say in, chapter, in verse seven, will any, of, any one of you who has a servant plowing the field Plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field come at once and recline at table again The word servant there is the Greek word for slave. It's a common word used it means that When you're owned by somebody else I know in, in our culture and the history of the world slavery is a it can be an awful thing But this I this ha- carries with it the idea that you've been hired by somebody to do a job And so when you do your job You've been out doing your job all day. You've been plowing. You've been keeping sheep. You, right. This is what you were hired to do. Then you come in from the field. Are you going to be told, okay, now that you've worked all day, come on in. The master is going to say to you, servant, I hired you to do a job. You've done your job. Congratulations. Why don't you come in and I'm going to serve you and you can recline at the table no the master says you've simply done what i've hired you to do now come inside and work some more and serve me because i'm the master and when you're done serving me then you can eat as well and when you've done so you've only done what you've been hired to do i will never forget uh, before i was in ministry i worked a sales job and i was managing a store and there was this one employee that had moved from store to store he was an older gentleman probably like twice my age been in the business probably as long as i was alive and he had, every store that he had been in, the management, manager of that store had always tailored the job to whatever it was this individual wanted to do. And so he got to do his job according to however he felt like doing it and wanted to do it because nobody really wanted to deal with the repercussions. Well, so he came to the store that I was managing and this just was not working out well. And I said, hey, look, this is really what you, sh- you need to be doing, and he threw a fit. And I said, hey, look, when you were offered the job, you knew the job description, right? Yes. When you took the job, you agreed to the job description, right? Yes. Okay, so all I'm asking you to do is for you to do what you agreed to do, to get paid to do. And he just, he couldn't fathom it. For so long, he had just been working in a job where he got to do it however he wanted to do it. And I was like, that's not going to work here. I hope that we can still work together and this will work out. He ended up getting transferred to another store. He didn't like that. But the point is, is that when you're hired to do a job and you know what that job is and you've agreed to that job, then you do that job fully. And as a Christian, you do that job with as much joy and appreciation, and you do all things as if you're doing it unto the Lord. That's the mentality of the believer. It says in verse 8, after you, will he not rather say to him after he's come to the field, prepare supper for me and dress properly and, while, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. You will get your opportunity to eat and drink, but it's not until after you've just done the work that you've been hired to do. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? This is something that I I see often in our culture, is that everything has to be celebrated. I mean, everybody gets a ribbon. Everybody, just for participating. There are no winners, don't call someone a loser. You certainly don't say that. That is very bad. Everybody needs to be celebrated. whatever it is that they've done, whatever it is that they've said, whatever it is that they want to be. This is the culture that we live in. Jesus would say, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? You've only done what it is that God has called you to do. When you come to know Christ, you count the cost, you know that he is the master There is no like, hey, can I be the master today and then you can take up the reins tomorrow? No, he is always master, Lord, God, creator, sovereign, king over all things. We're the servants. And unworthy ones, he would call us in verse 10. Just consider yourselves as unworthy servants saying we have only done what was our duty. Look at what he says, so also when you have done all that you were commanded. Not just some, not just part. We celebrate people when they just do like 50% of the job. Because to do otherwise is mean. They're going to feel bad about themselves. And he says, when you've done everything, when you've done all of your job, you've done all that what was commanded, the master makes commands. Commands. And when you've done all that was commanded of you to do, your response should be, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is really at the essence of the heart of humility, being able to see this, being able to embrace this. And we wanna talk a little bit about, you know, how that can be. How can we, and if you're not there, how can we get there? But the question is first is, is that how you see yourself? Do you see yourself truly as a believer in your relationship with Christ? We, we talk about, there are places of Scripture when Scripture talks about you are an adopted child. You are beloved. There are wonderful, wonderful ways in which Scripture talks about our relationship with Christ. But there are also other ways. We've, we, we talked a couple months ago about the importance of always seeing ourselves in the light of being a sinner, because it's the sinner that Jesus receives. It's the sinner that he accepts, not the, self, not the self-exalting, not the proud, but those who see themselves as lowly, unworthy servants. And there's a component of us as believers where we need to see ourselves as being unworthy servants. After all that it is that, we've, that God calls us to do, no matter what it is, whether it's cleaning the bathrooms here, whether it's working with children's ministry, whether it's devoting your life to overseas missions and, and laying your life down in the mission field, whatever it may be, the response is, I'm just an unworthy servant and I am so thankful to be yours. I'm thankful that God, God, that you are my master. Is there any room in your theology? Is there any room in your affection for that? For being deeply thankful that the King of the universe calls us his servants and we get to call him master. Because there should be. I wanna briefly talk about how the world, we need to be able to identify the world's thinking along these lines. Really, I think at the heart of it, we've talked about it before, is this idea of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is really lies at the core of pride, it's that I as an individual not only should, but I have the right and I demand to express myself however I see fit, and everybody around must accept that. Not only accept it, but they must celebrate it. And if it's not celebrated, then you are a hater, and cancel culture is coming for you real fast. It's all about expressing yourself, celebrating yourself. You deserve the best. How often do you hear that? You deserve the best. You should expect the best. You should expect recognition. You should expect, expect applause. You should expect praise for what you've done. No, no matter the, what it is, no matter what the feat is from small to great, everything has to be celebrated. Because everything has to be celebrated and because expressing yourself as an individual is of such high priority, any negative feelings or thoughts about yourself or who you are to be avoided at all cost. And so you distance yourself from anybody who's going to tell you anything negative or approach you or correct you on anything that you don't want to hear. I don't like what you're saying to me. It makes me feel bad. And we get to the point as a society where negative feelings and are so are, are so to be avoided that there's medication for all of it. I don't like the way that I feel. I'm worried. There's medication for that. I don't like the way that I feel. I'm afraid. There's medication for that. I don't like the way that I feel. I'm anxious. Medicine for that, too. I don't like the way that I feel. I'm angry. Got a pill for that, as well. It's everything. It's, it, 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 you have to understand that the desire to express yourself however you feel is so strong and so pervasive in our culture that to hear the words and to embrace the words and to enjoy being called an unworthy servant is going to be countercultural. You calling me an unworthy servant, that, I don't like the way that that makes me feel. You're mean. That's wrong. And if I think about being an unworthy servant too long, I might get sad. And now I got to go make an appointment with my doctor to get medication because I don't like feeling sad anymore. This is but but you don't understand this is rampant. This is just normal everyday living for our culture. Everyone deserves the same outcome regardless of effort put in. To hear that you're an unworthy servant that's cruel. We no longer is it fair to provide equal opportunity for everybody, we demand equal outcome as well. So the servant that puts in, does half the job, expects the same pay and the same recognition as the servant that does the full job all the way. Responsibility is seen as being demanding and unkind. Adversity is seen as being oppressive. The the days where you have to persevere through hardship and adversity in order to get somewhere are going by the wayside. Because it I don't because it, it doesn't make me feel good and your personal feelings will rule the day. This, well, I, I'm, I'm mentioning all this because I want to, to set a scene for This is the context in which the church exists. It's not coming. It's here. This is the context of, of the culture of which the church currently exists. And you are going to be told, well, you might go to, to work this week, Tell me what the sermon was about this week. What did you learn at church? I learned about, I'm an unworthy servant. I would never go to your church. I don't want to hear about that. That makes me feel terrible. But the context of the passage. Guess what? I'm fine with the title, Unworthy Servant. Because I know that it makes, I know who my master is and I know he's wonderful and I know he's kind and I know he's gracious and I know he's merciful and I know he's just I know he's just and righteous he's going to make everything right one day don't you look forward to that when wrong is called right, we live in a culture where wrong is celebrated and called right, and what is right is done away with and being put by the wayside. Don't you, aren't you glad that God's standard of right and wrong stands fast and always will, and there's going to come a day in which what is truly right and truly wrong will be exposed for what it is by the one who is truly righteous, and he will make all things right there will be nowhere where anybody can go to hide away from the righteousness and the holiness and the truthfulness and the justice of God Himself. He's going to get it right. And that brings a tremendous amount of peace and comfort for the believer. We're reminded about what our text says that we have a master that's greater than us. Don't we? When you think about God, what are the, his attributes that come to your mind? If you were at the men's breakfast a couple weeks ago, guys were listing off some of the attributes of God. Faithful, merciful, sovereign. Do you know your master well enough to know that it's a privilege to be called his servant? we're reminded of our text that just because we're called unworthy servants, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. I think that's one of the the challenges that we have in a passage like this, is that we read that we're unworthy servants and we go, well, great, God doesn't love me then. That's because as a society, we've identified love, love is equal with celebration. If you don't celebrate that person, or everything that they are, then you don't love them. And that's not not true, and that's not biblical. I can love you and disagree with you. I can love you and confront you regarding your sin. I can love you because my standard of love is biblical. And, and, And I don't have to celebrate. I don't have to throw a party because you got in 12th place. This is... But this, but this is the culture that we live in. My love, my love for my children is, it's never going to change. My love for my wife is never going to change. These things are are firm and fixed. But it doesn't mean that I celebrate everything that they do. We live in a culture where love is equal to celebration, and we need to be reminded that love, our love, needs to be defined biblically rather than by, rather than culturally. But there are some dangers for us to avoid, I think, and when we read a passage like this, for us as believers, one of the dangers is that we we create a self-imposed standard of what is commanded upon others. We create a self-imposed standard of what is commanded. And so when you get a group of um, biblically well-informed people together, we all know what each other knows. You know how easy that is to hold one another accountable? I know you know what the Bible says in this, in this passage right here. You better do it. And so then it becomes, then you turn, that turns into legalism. Everybody's always looking at everybody else to say, I know that you know you're an unworthy servant. And I know that you know you've been called and commanded to do all that it is that God has commanded you to do, but you're not doing it. And so it creates this really rigid and stiff Um, church culture, where it's devoid of any sort of mercy or patience or understanding at all with each other. The next thing that it can do is we get jaded and cynical, and then we're harsh with one another as well. So we have this self-imposed system. I know you know what the Bible says. You're not doing what the Bible says. And so so I become hard-hearted. I become cynical. I grow harsh with dealing with my brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than kind and and patient. Think of all the ways that you want God to deal with you. When When you're wrong and when you're living in sin, how is it that you want God to respond to you? You want nothing but grace. We want nothing but mercy. God, be kind, be merciful to me. That's what we should be extending to other people. Just because we see each other as unworthy servants doesn't mean that we're unkind to each other. We should be merciful and good, just like God is to us. We also have another danger to avoid is that we forget that living the Christian life is a spiritual battle. It's not about dotting every I, it's not about crossing every T. Just because we're unworthy servants and we know what's commanded of us, and we're called to keep each other accountable for doing what God calls us to do, doesn't mean that we can all, Doesn't mean that it's easy to do, and it doesn't certainly means that we can't do it in our flesh. We forget that this is a spiritual battle we're involved in. Well, I look around the room and I see a. a a room of people who are spiritual people involved in a spiritual battle fighting a spiritual fight against real spiritual foes and we need the help of one another as unworthy servants were involved in a battle and in a war and not everything is just about Dotting every dot I and crossing every T, just being where you need to be and showing up when you're supposed to show up. Do what you know you're supposed to do, devoid of any sort of real affection for God or affection for one another. All of that affection stuff doesn't matter. You just do what you know you're supposed to do. Just get in line. That's not the way that God's people should should treat one another. We're kind and compassionate and merciful and understanding with each other because we're all servants of the one master. We should look at each other in this room and see brothers and sisters in Christ, but fellow unworthy servants of the most high king as well. And be here to encourage one another and help one another as we run this race and fight this fight and keep the faith as Paul would say. Is that how you see the people in this room? We talk about building a community of faith, hope, and love, where Christ is exalted and lives are transformed. How are we going to build that community of faith, hope, and love? Through staunch legalism? Or through really, truly caring for one another, as God has cared for us? The question is, is, really, then how do you get there? How can you develop a heart to be an unworthy servant, to read a passage like this and to embrace it and to love it. I think we need to remember that if we want to cultivate hearts of humility and submission and gratitude and service, which are all key components of seeing yourself as a servant, that you have to know how that comes about. Psalmists and... One of my favorite passages of Psalm, in the Psalms is Psalm 84, verse 10. I want to say what the psalmist says here. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be a doorkeeper, I'd rather be a servant in the doorway of my God, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. One day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. That's the heart of an unworthy servant. Just glad that you're employed by the master, glad to be a part of his household. I would rather be a servant in the doorway of my God than to spend a thousand days anywhere else with anybody else. That's the heart of an unworthy servant. And we're reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that this is done by the working of the Holy Spirit. The natural man cannot receive things of the Spirit. This is something that has to be done by the Spirit of God working in our hearts and in our lives. God, give me a heart. That's like that. Give me a heart of a a servant. Give me a heart that sees myself as an unworthy servant. I'm ready to embrace it so long as you are my master. And then also, not only is it wrought by the Spirit, but we're called to cultivate it as well. How much time do we spend cultivating a heart like this? You've got to be intentional in doing so. Because the information that you're taking in from everywhere else is the opposite. Romans 12, 3. Paul says, For by the grace Given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you think of yourself with sober judgment? Do you think real highly of yourself? Do you think about yourself often? Do we not realize that whatever it is that we have, whatever gift you have, whatever gift I have, has been given to us by God? This is a grace of God. The gift that you have to teach, the gift that you have to work with children, the gift that you have of hospitality, whatever spiritual gift it is that we have is a gift from God himself that makes us his servants. It's his gift to us that qualifies us to be a servant in his household. A servant has a job to do. A servant needs to have the ability to do that job. That job is given by God, the ability to do that job is given by God. It's all a grace given to us by him and thus to be called an unworthy servant is an incredible privilege and joy. And so we should think of ourselves with sober judgment. Do you ever take time to to truly think about the infinite difference between God and you? How different He is. He is so unlike us. And when you do that, do you know what that does to the goodness that He's shown you? It enriches it. It gives it more body. There's more depth. You can't imagine that this master would allow us into his house. as we cultivate a heart of humility. It's got to be we see in a, uh, an expression of it in Psalm 84, we see that it has to be brought about by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but then it also must be cultivated by the believer in Romans chapter 12. That's the heart of an unworthy servant. And how do we get there? Well, God's provided the help for us. God actually does this and works this in us. He provides a tremendous amount of help for us in this way. 1 John chapter 2 My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His position as an advocate in our lives helps us. He is, our, our Lord Jesus is actively advocating on our behalf. Not just in our, as, in our position, with Jesus Christ, but in our conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. What is it that, when, you, when he says and he calls us an unworthy servant, who is he calling us to be like? Who is the one who laid aside all of it is that he was rightly entitled to and came and served us? That's why I had us read that, that passage from John chapter 13 that Chelsea read for us earlier today. Jesus' ultimate expression of service, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? I haven't just washed your feet. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. It's a call to be like Christ who put aside so much that he might come and dwell among us and by dwelling among us live a perfect life on our behalf and die on our behalf and defeat death and Satan and rise again. And after rising again, he ascends to the Father's right hand where he currently sits in perfect holiness, in perfect beauty, in perfect majesty, advocating for his children as he conforms us into the image of Christ. And that is comprehensive. There is not an area of our lives that is off limits to bring us into conformity with the one who did not, equal, keep, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, as Philippians 2 would say. He calls us to be unworthy servants and to empty ourselves and to be conformed into the image of Christ. And for us as the believer, the fact that God is doing that and helps us do that and advocates us in doing so is such great news. It shows that I'm His. It shows me that I belong to Him. And all the riches and the treasures and the promises that He holds out to me in His Word are true for me. There could be no greater reality for the believer than to be an unworthy servant for the best master that there is. Not only is He advocating for us, but He would... We're so we're so weak, aren't we? We're, we forget things so easily. I'm so glad he gave us a book to read. It can remind us of these things. Somebody says in Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Does that have anything to do with being conformed into the image of Christ and being an unworthy servant? The Spirit of God. Sometimes we don't even know what to, we don't even know what to say. We don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit of God God himself as the Spirit is interceding for us, groaning with, with words that are, that are too deep for us to understand. I can imagine that, I don't know about you, but I can imagine with me the Spirit is often groaning, be patient with your unworthy servant Nick. He, wants, he does really want to be like you. He's just being an idiot right now. And I'm so thankful that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That the Spirit of God is still interceding and working on my behalf. As I I, I seek to be conformed into the image of Christ and adopt and embrace and cherish this identity as an unworthy servant. And I want to say, like Psalm 8410 says, with all my heart... Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I want to say that with every fiber of my being and really mean it, and I thank God that His Spirit intercedes and groans with me along those lines when I don't. Then he would go on to say, In Romans 8, 27 and 28, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Aren't you glad that the Spirit intercedes for you according to God's will and not yours? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have been called according to his purpose and so forth from there. The help that we have is that Christ himself is our advocate, that the Spirit of God is interceding for us, and that Jesus has modeled his love for us, and he, he himself has taken on the nature of a servant. The call to be an unworthy servant and to do what's commanded of us is the call to be like Christ. He was faithful in all that it is that he came to do. As we prepare to partake of communion together, it's upon him that we look now. We look at the one who, by all means, should not have come as a servant and yet did. He was there, he was a part of speaking creation into existence. And then he comes and dwells in it and is afflicted in all the ways in which we are because of it. Takes on the nature of a servant. And serves you and I by dying for us so that we might be made right and brought into union with him. What an incredible blessing. If you're new to North Hills, we partake of communion together. So in a few moments, I'll ask you to get up and get the elements. And you can return back to your seat and just hold on to them and spend some time in prayer. This is an opportunity for confession. This is an opportunity for worship. The goodness of God that's been shown to us in Christ Jesus himself and then we'll partake of this communion time together. So I invite you, please, grab the elements and return back to your seat, and we'll partake of it together here shortly.